My daddy loved family-style restaurants. I never did like them, not because the food wasn't good, but I never did like sitting down with a bunch of strangers I didn't know. But daddy, he loved that. We'd go on vacation. If it said family style and it had a lazy Susan, that meant two things. He was going to meet people and it was all you could eat. And he loved that. A journalist called me from Georgia the other day, a good friend of mine, and he said, I'm headed to your daddy's favorite restaurant. I said, you're going to Buckner's? He goes, yep. He says, I've had many a happy day with your daddy at this restaurant. And so if you're ever driving down I-75 just north of Macon and you see a big sign that says Buckner's Family Style Restaurant, you go, Buford loved to eat there. And if Buford liked to eat there, there's good food. But I got to eat with people I don't know. And daddy would meet everybody at the table. He'd talk to them. They'd be his friends before long. He just, that was his, that's just the way he lived life. Matter of fact, when they retired and started camping, Daddy would meet everybody in the campgrounds. He'd say, Louise, bake a pie. I'm going to take it down here. And he'd go meet folks, and they'd come down and have dinner with Mom and Dad at the camper. And I have laughed so many times thinking about this. My poor Mama. There's going to be a, she's going to have to have somebody like me carry her crown for her because of the things that she's done for Daddy and I. But uh, I was always amazed, Becky and I were talking about this once, People would come from all over the country to mom and daddy's house. I'd come up sometime and there'd be a camper from Alaska. There'd be a camper from Wyoming. There'd be a camper from Maine. I said, Dad, where do you know all these people from? He said, we meet them in the campgrounds. And he'd just go around meeting people. That was his style. Daddy would have a conversation with a fence post because he wouldn't talk back to him. He'd just listen to him, you know. He just, he was that way. When I was scared of preaching, he'd say, son, just go out and out and stand in the woods and talk. He said, just preach to a tree. Preach to a stump. He took me out one time. He says, now I'm going to leave. You just preach it like you think it's supposed to be preached. I felt so stupid. But I knew he was going to ask me if I did it when I came back. <laughs> so I, I gave it a half-hearted attempt and I had no clue he was listening. And he says, Nobody's going to get saved listening to that, son. <laughs> he loved people. He pulled me out of a lot. Some of you that knew him, you know that. I've, you've told me so many stories about him. I think one of the things that I learned from my dad, although I don't possess that charismatic personality that he had, one of the things that I learned from my dad was loving people just loving people and you got to learn to to like them to love them and the more I've thought about that I've thought about how grace changed my dad's life I thought about how grace changed my life I leaned over to Becky while Steve was singing that song just now and I said you know that's that's coming from his heart that's his experience. Everything changed. And that's what, why we call it Amazing Grace. And in this series that we've been in, Power, I want to talk to you today about the power of presentation. What does God do with what you present to Him? What does God do with your faith story? What does God do with your life? 
What does God do with your time, your relationships? What does God do with your hardships, your disappointments? What does God do with your finances? What does God do with your marriage and your children? I love dedicating children to the Lord. What you don't see is what I get to do with the parents before the dedication. And that's sit down and talk to them. So this is not a ceremony we do, but let's talk about what you're doing when you present your child to the Lord. And we go through some scripture and we talk about the commitment that we make as a church, the commitment you make as a family, and what happens by faith when we present this child to the Lord. There are no such things as just ceremonies at Woodland Church. God does something in response to your faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God because when you come to God, you believe that He is and He rewards you for what you're doing, for what you're asking or what you're seeking. So we've looked at certain things like habits that the early church had, the power of those habits and how we incorporate those habits in our lives. We've looked at purpose, but this morning I want to look at presentation. What happens when we present ourselves? So if you would stand with me, we're going to read just a little bit further in that passage we've been looking at. From Acts chapter 2, 46 and 47, the word of the Lord says, they worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. And all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And read this last sentence with me, please. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. So they worshiped together. They, they came to the temple daily. They met in their homes. 2,000 years ago, Jesus invited us to love our neighbors. He said, join me in this. Just love your neighbor. Welcome your neighbor. Reach out to your neighbor. Love one another. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he said that if you do this, you're actually fulfilling the law. You don't become a legalist. But you love God in everything you do. And you love one another. And so I want to give us a reminder of that invitation that Jesus gave us to love each other, to love our neighbor, to love God, to be a part of a small group where you know people. Sometimes people will say to me, say, well, I don't know anybody. You know, if we just there's a problem that we face today. People are less frequent in their attendance. It's, some of it's because of caring for elderly parents. Becky and I are headed to Georgia right after this service. Our grandson goes into the cancer center tomorrow at Emory. Our, Becky's father's going into hospice this week. We'll be back next Sunday. But So there's all kinds of challenges that face us. There are job challenges. There are travel challenges. Small groups have become more important than ever because sometimes people can't be at church every week. I was just going over our, those who are regular attenders at Woodland who attend this church. We would fill the sanctuary two times every Sunday if everybody could be here like it used to be. So what we have to 
think about is how do we facilitate this life, this vibrant life? One of the ways we do that is small groups so that you just don't know the back of somebody's head and so that you have people that pray with you and love you. Jesus said, where two or three of you agree together as, as concerning any one thing, it shall be done. You need people who pray with you. Amen? So join me in prayer and let's talk about what happens when we present ourselves to the Lord. I love you, Father. And I share this story about Daddy and me only to say to this congregation, each of us are different. None of us, Lord, have the same exact gift mix. None of us have the same personality gift mix. Jesus, we don't have to imitate one another. That's the way to frustration and failure. But if we will love you first and foremost, if we'll love each other and love our neighbor, then, oh, God, I am convinced that the kingdom of heaven will advance forcefully, graciously, powerfully, and we will experience the very power of Pentecost where people are being added daily today in 2019 just like they did in Jerusalem. I ask this all in your holy name. And everybody said, Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Grab a pen and follow along with me this morning. Pastor Mark, stay close by because you're a good artist and I'm going to need your help in just a second, okay? So I'm going to give you all these beautiful pens that you bought me this morning. And um, he is neat as a pen. And I'm a sloppy jalopy, so we're going to let him help us. Well, as I was meditating and thinking upon this passage of Scripture and just been praying over it for a long time now, God, how do I present this? And I, I remember just praying over all these things and saying, how do I present this? And suddenly it hit me. That's the message. How many of you know that sometimes when you're praying, you'll pray your own answer. You'll pray just what you need to hear from God. And, and so I titled this message, The Power of Presentation. The first thing I want you to look at this morning is that God gives me everything in Christ. God gives you everything in Christ. There's not one thing more that God can give you. You have everything you need in Christ Jesus. If you study history, you will find a lot of times the things that people war and fight over become absolutely worthless in times of war, in times of famine. That which is cheapest becomes the most valuable, like food, clean water, things like that. And suddenly gold and silver don't have the value that they used to have because of our, our need for the basic necessities of life. God gives us everything we need. Look at this. The Bible says in Romans 3.25, God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his love, his life, shedding his blood. And the sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and he did not punish those who sinned in times past. When God gave himself, he gave his son, he gave Christ to us, he gave us everything that heaven had. As a matter of fact, there's an interesting phrase in an old hymn that the church doesn't sing that much anymore. You may not even know it, but he gave me all that heaven could afford, as though heaven somehow or another was limited in what it could afford, and yet the hymn writer got it right. He gave us all that heaven could afford because there was nothing more that God could give us than to give him himself, give us himself. 
And that's why for Christians, if you don't understand that, the cross is so precious to us because the cross represents that God gave us everything in Christ. He withheld nothing from you. He, withheld, he didn't withhold his love. He withheld his judgment. He didn't withhold his grace. He withheld his anger. He didn't withhold his, his mercy. He withheld the punishment that our sins deserve. But God gave us everything we needed in the Lord. What I'm afraid we forget sometimes is the awfulness of sin. We forget the hideousness of sin, the heinousness of sin. Because sin is mocked in our day. Sin is mocked in our comedy. Sin is mocked in our television shows. Sometimes I even hear Christians mocking and laughing about sin. And sin is defeated. Don't get me wrong when I try to teach on this for just a moment. Sin is defeated. The power of sin is broken in our lives. But if we're not careful, sin is very deceptive. I love history. Most of you know that. I'm not a historian. Far from it. But I know several historians. And I've been bouncing something off of them that I have been thinking about. And that is that our earliest written history that tells a story, our earliest written history goes back to the Sumerians where they begin to tell stories of demigod kings who come down and they reigned for 30,000 years. And he had a son and he reigned for 20,000 years. Well, we know that that's myth, but we know that human beings were writing those histories on cuneiform tablets and we have records of those. What has happens often as people try to do away with the knowledge of God and as people try to do away with the story of our creation and why we need a Savior, we have fascinating stories on our television channels that I have watched and I'm intrigued by them just like perhaps you're intrigued by them. But they're telling stories, they're telling narratives based not upon written stories that are left behind, but based upon the interpretation of archaeologists who are doing what they should do. They're digging up bone fragments, and they're digging up fire pits, and they're taking pictures of hand paintings on cave walls, and maybe they're taking pictures of little animals that in prehistorical times before there was written history, people were drawing these animals, and they're saying, well, this is what life was like. We don't know that's what life was like, because this is the imagination of the archaeologist. But we do know what was life was like from the historians because when they tell us the record of written human history. And the most ancient forms of human history point back to a time in human beings' histories when there was a belief, a universal belief across that span of time in a monotheistic God, which takes me back to the Garden of Eden. There was no sin in this world until we as human beings chose to sin. The earth was not created for sin. You were not created for sins. You were not created for this broken fellowship with God. And sin has brought in violence. It has brought in disease. It has brought in prejudice. It has brought in sickness. It has brought in corruption. It has brought in war. It has brought in every imaginable horror that you can think of or that you've ever read about in the news. As a young Christian, there was a popular song on Christian stations and even on secular stations. One of the lyrics went, and violence fills our land, war and terror on every hand. Friends, I am telling you that there, this earth was not created for that, and there was a unique moment in history when that didn't happen. But as sin has progressed, people have thought of more and more violent ways to kill and to destroy. One philosopher 
said if we wanted to stop nuclear war, then what we should do, and this is respected Harvard philosopher, and I, I don't agree with what he's saying, but just listen to what he said. He said if we wanted to stop war, if we wanted to stop nuclear holocaust from happening in our world, then this Harvard philosopher says what we should do is take a capsule, place it inside a human being that has to walk with the president or the premier of whatever other nation next to his heart with the nuclear codes and the president literally has to cut that capsule out of from next to their heart and in taking a life then the person that wants to launch a nuclear weapon understands he is taking millions of life let the man who sits in a basement let the man who sits in an office that punches in a code have to take a life and see the bloodshed before millions of lives would be would be destroyed in a nuclear holocaust. And then the philosopher says that would never happen because any decent president or any decent premier could not have it within him to cut the heart out of another human being. And yet, Mr. Philosopher, every single day violence fuels our land where people are shedding the blood of one another. There was a time in our history when that was not so. And that was when God walked in the garden in the cool of the day and God walked in the garden at the evening and it just happens to be the two times of the day that the Bible records that Jesus would go and pray. He would pray in those early morning hours and he would pray in those evening hours because there's something about that time when it seems the Spirit of God moves. And if you know that's true, let's give him a hand of praise for that this morning. God moves in our lives. So, Pastor Mark, would you help me this morning? And I'm going to move this pulpit for just a second. And if you'll bring that up here. What is this propitiation that we just read about? What does this mean when God gave us Christ? If you'll write God here, man here, and Jesus here. And sometimes I draw this on the back of a napkin to help people understand what God did for us in Christ and why this is such a big deal that God gave me everything. I need you to write fast. Faster. There you go. Don't worry about neatness. Just worry about getting it up there. Let's look at Jesus for just a moment. If you will draw me an arrow from Jesus to man, right here. Draw me an arrow from Jesus to God now. Okay. This is what I want you to see. When Jesus died at Calvary, what Paul was saying here, when God presented Jesus as a sacrifice, people are made right when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life. In your King James Version, you'll remember, uh, you'll remember a word called propitiation. That's what Jesus was doing. It's what I mentioned in the offering prayer this morning in Leviticus 17.23, where God said, the blood you put on the mercy seat, that's a propitiation. It's the same Hebrew word that we use for shedding his blood in the New Testament, propitiation. It's the same Hebrew word. And that blood that was shed, God is a God of love and wrath. God withheld his wrath from us because we put our faith in Jesus Christ. God cannot and will not abide sin. That's what I fear that we're losing as contemporary Christians is this understanding of why Jesus had to die. I listened to a response 
respected man recently say on TV, the reason that I'm not a Christian is that I have not been mean enough, evil enough, that anybody should have had to die for me. Jesus should have never been crucified for anybody. And as I thought about that, I was like, our world has lost the understanding of the hideousness. All of the evil I just described to you, it's because not of God's sin, not of the devil's sin, but because we sinned against God. In that Old Testament, those offerings, that propitiation, that shedding of blood was put upon, the, the high priest would make sacrifices for he and his family. Then he would go into that place called the Holy of Holies, and there would be another sacrifice made. He would make, put blood on top of the Ark of the Covenant, which was to avert the wrath of God for the sins of Israel. God said, that's my gift to you. We know that was looking forward to Calvary. We know that was looking forward to what Jesus was going to do. They look forward in the Old Testament. We look back in the New Testament to what Jesus did. Sin cannot abide in the presence of God. God will judge sin. It's what makes Revelation make so much sense. If you've been going through this with me on Wednesday nights, when people say, I, I don't like this wrathful God. Listen, God gave his own son so that you and I would not have to experience his wrath. So, right here, Pastor Mark, when Jesus shed his blood, he redeemed us. Would you write the word redemption right there? And what redeem means is he brought us back from our slavery to sin, our captivity sin. What redeem means is that Jesus paid the price for your salvation and my salvation. For everyone that would believe, he paid the price by shedding his blood. Now if you'd write the word propitiation right here. P-R-O-P-I-T-I-A-T-I-O-N. Just put propit. Propitiation. Propitiation was where Jesus satisfied, averted the wrath of God. He satisfied what God said had to be paid. There will be no sin in heaven. Somebody says to me recently about universalism, yes, Adolf Hitler will be in heaven because Jesus died to save everybody. Yes, Pol Pot will be in heaven because Jesus died to save everybody. Yes, Stalin will be in heaven because Jesus died to save everybody. If Pol Pot and Stalin and all of the evil emperors of this world are in heaven, heaven's going to be a hellish place. Because no one is saved unless, first of all, they put their faith in Jesus, that he paid the price that they should have paid, but their blood could not have satisfied. So Jesus sheds his innocent blood to satisfy the wrath of God. Now if you'll draw an arrow from God to man, as a result of that, God justifies us. Write the word justify, justification there. And what justification means is just as if I had never sinned. Ladies and gentlemen, do you get that? I am a sinner. I may have went from sandbox to sandbox looking for reality. I may have never shot anything up my veins. I never shot, snorted any Coke. The only Coke ever in my nose was when I burped wrong from drinking a Coca-Cola too fast. That's the only Coke in my nose. However, I am submitting to you my sin, separated from me from God. I wasn't created for hell, but I would have busted hell open if it wasn't for the blood of Jesus Christ and redeeming me back. And now God looks at me and says, Dennis, it's just as though you've never sinned before. Hallelujah! That's good news. 
That's why this is so important to understanding what our faith is all about. Give Pastor Mark a big hand. He is. He draws everything for us. Well, since God has done this for me, how can I not but give God my everything? Since God withheld nothing from me, since God gave me all that heaven could afford, and I still have trouble saying that, but when I understand it, then it really gets me. How can I not but sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me? I once was lost, and Haley, I can't sing it like you do. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> I sound like a dying calf in a hailstorm when I do that, but I try. Whoa, oh, oh, it just, it feels good to do that. I once was lost, but now I see that's the grace of God. I didn't deserve it, but He did it for me anyway. And I'm guilty, 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 guilty. Guilty as charged of everything that offends the holiness of God, and yet because of the precious blood of Jesus, God looks at you and me now just as though I'd never sinned. How can our self-esteem not be drastically improved because of that? How can we not know that we are made more than conquerors in Christ? How can we not know that if God did not withhold His Son from us, how will He not give us all things that we need to live godly and righteous lives in Christ Jesus? How can we not know that if God did not withhold His Son from us, we cannot help but be more than conquerors in Christ Jesus? You see, that's what frees us to give. The Apostle Paul would write then, he says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, the mockery of this world, the judgments of this world, the lust of this world, the violence of the world, the sin of the world, the evil of the world, the, sky, the, the scheming and the guiles of this world. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Say that with me, please. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. One more time. Good and acceptable and perfect. I can't even remember the name of that movie, but it so stirred my heart. It's a lot of times when people are down, I'll say to them, you is good, you is kind. And I can say that because we live out proving Proving our lives prove that God's will is good. When people look at your life, Rick, when they look at your life, when they look at your life, they get the opportunity to see what the will of God is like. So when people say, well, if you read the Bible, you'll know the will of God. That's true. But you see, Paul says, you and I, we are letters known and read by all the people that we know around us. We're presenting ourselves to God, and now God is presenting us to the world because we are proving what the good and acceptable and perfect will of God is. I mean, that changes how I live life. That changes how I approach circumstances because suddenly my life and your life, God is working in you and in me to show the world God is good. To show the world 
God is perfect. It doesn't mean we're perfect, but there's something powerfully magnetic about your life in Christ. Now, here's my question. What are you afraid to give God this morning? What are you afraid to surrender to God? We sing that song sometimes, especially in our prayer services on Saturday night, Jesus be the Lord of all, Jesus be the Lord of all. What are you afraid to give Him? Is it your children? Over the years, I can't tell you the parents that have come into me, even here at this church, and says, I do not want my son, I do not want my daughter to go into the ministry. When I was dying in Beaumont Hospital, Oakwood Hospital in Dearborn, one of the parents came, shook the side of my bed because their kid was filling the call. He says, I do not want my son in the ministry. You see, sometimes we're afraid and we withhold from God because we're fearful. Or maybe we have plans and we're afraid God's going to mess up our plans. And I'm going to tell you something. If you become a passionate follower of Jesus, there are going to be sometimes God messes up your plans. But when he does, it's always good. Are you afraid of giving God your time to do ministry? You were shaped for ministry. You were created for ministry. One of the most fascinating things you'll ever do is serve the Lord somewhere. Are you afraid to give God your marriage? Are you afraid to give God your career? Are you afraid that if you give God your career, then suddenly maybe God's going to use you or God's going to change your career path or what you've wanted? I can't tell you how many conversations like that I've had over the years. People come in my office and say, Pastor, I, I, I want to serve God, but what if God does this? What if God says take a lower position? What if God elevates me to a position that I don't feel like I'm prepared for? Pastor, I don't. I say, just trust God. Where God guides, God will provide. You can trust God in your career. It's coming up on tax time. Are you going to trust God with your integrity? And are you going to be honest on your tax forms? Or are you going to do what some people do, and that is fudge, lie, or cheat, or tell a white lie? There is no such thing as a white lie. A lie is a lie. You see, we have to be willing to trust God. Jim Elliott, the martyred missionary that we saw the movie about a few years ago, Jim Elliott said, one does not surrender a life in an instant. That which is lifelong can only be surrendered in a lifetime. A life of surrender. Each day, Becky and I have to re-surrender our lives to God. We have to re-remind ourselves, God, this day belongs to you. Our family prayed together for you and for this service, surrendering each Sunday this service to you. You see, When you surrender a lifetime, it's not just a decision that you made 20 years ago, 10 years ago, 5 years ago, or maybe even last week. It's a day-by-day decision to say, Jesus, be the Lord of all. I give you everything because there's always this temptation to take back. There's always this temptation to take back time, to, you know, to sleep in a little longer rather than to talk to Jesus in the morning, to to complain rather than to pray. 
I wonder how many times the angels of heaven have looked down upon us when Jesus says, if you will seek me, you will find me. I wonder how many times the angels of heaven have looked down upon us and when God says, if my people, not the Republicans, not the Democrats, not the city, not the country, if my people, if you and me as passionate followers of Christ, if my people will humble themselves and confess their sins, turn from their evil ways, if my people and call upon me, then will I hear from heaven and then will I hear their land and I can imagine the angels standing up there going church why won't you pray there's the answer why won't you pray pray for your children if I had a lost son or daughter that was not serving Jesus I would give heaven no rest I would storm the gates of heaven night and day. I would plead the blood of Jesus. I would say, God, I have given you everything. We presented that child to you at a baby dedication. We know what that meant. This child belongs to you. I pray you will bind the spirit of evil. I pray that you will bind the way of the devil. I pray that you will put a hedge of thorns around about him. I pray that you will be a wall of fire around about him. I pray, God, the first he gets from you the more difficult life will be heal the backslider bring him back because more important than anything is that my son be saved born again and living in heaven with you forevermore he could be a billionaire and die and bust hell wide open what are you holding back from God when God is saying I've given you everything now just ask I'm at that wonderful time of life now, being a grandpa. It's not only my kids that still feel like they can call me and ask for anything. Now it's my grandkids that feel like they can call me and ask me for anything. <laughs> Yesterday, the boys call me. And boy, does Davin know how to suck up already. He goes, Papa. I says, what? He said, you're a chocolate ice cream. I said, wow. He goes, I'm going to eat you up, Papa. <laughs> and then in just a moment later, he said, Papa, what? He said, Papa, I want a pizza. Will you give me a pizza? <laughs> Papa going to get you a pizza, buddy, the biggest pizza you ever had in your life. You see, they know their love. You can ask God, but you've got to make up your mind to be a passionate follower of Jesus. Listen to me. Present yourselves a living sacrifice. If you don't make up your mind to be a passionate follower of Christ, I love you. I'm your pastor. I have loved you for 20 years. If you don't make up your mind to be a passionate follower of Christ, your unmade-up mind will make your life up. If you don't make up your mind to passionately pursue Him and the ministry God has called you to, your unmade-up mind will make up your life. That's why Paul says so persuasively, I urge you, and with everything in me, as we've looked at this early church and the power they had, I urge you and me, Present yourselves as living sacrifices. So how do we do that? Well, very quickly.
When I present my all to God, God begins making my heart like Jesus. I mean, when I withhold nothing, I say, God, here's my life, here's my heart. Take my life and let it be wholly consecrated, Lord, to Thee. God begins an amazing work. He changes your heart. He changes your life. You, you begin to love like Jesus. You begin to share like Jesus. You begin to give like Jesus. You begin to think like Jesus. As a matter of fact, you begin to talk like Jesus. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, the apostle says, I'm certain that God who began the good work within you will continue His work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. We're not saying that we present ourselves and by somehow or another an act of our will. We're just saying we've made up our mind we're going to follow Jesus. Can you say amen to that? We've made up our minds we're going to follow Jesus. Can you say amen to that? We're going, we've made up our minds, not that just we're going to attend church, we are going to passionately follow Christ in every sphere of our life, and I am certain God will continue, He will continue until it is finally finished, God will make you and me like His Son, Jesus Christ. Can we give Him a hand of praise for that? I want to be like Jesus, more like Jesus. You say, Pastor, how do I know that? Well, you know what your natural desires are, and you know what godly desires are. You're experiencing those already if you've given your heart to Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, God is working in you, the apostle continues, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. So do everything without complaining and arguing. Why did Paul write this? First of all, the Philippian church, although it's a great church of joy, the Philippian church had begun to have some divisions. They had forgotten what God had called them to do, and that was to boldly love lost people. They had forgotten what God had called them to do, that was to worship Him by inviting their neighbors in, by welcoming their neighbors in. And they became self-centered, and they began to argue and to divide among themselves. And Paul says, listen, I know you've been faithful in persecution, but you're running a danger now. I am certain God, what God started, He is going to finish in you. So if you will do everything without complaining and do what God is putting in your heart, and sometimes God puts in your heart to give to people that you wouldn't normally give to. You don't understand why, but you do. Sometimes God puts it in your heart to call somebody and you haven't thought of them. So you pick up your cell phone and you call them right then and they go, I can't believe you called. I needed to talk to you. Or sometimes you feel like you need to just send a card and you write a card or an email and, or send a text and it ministers to people. It's God working through you to love your neighbor. That's the Holy Spirit at work in you because normally you're more concerned about what's going on for dinner, what's going to be on TV tonight, what game do I have to have the kids at, what fundraiser do we have to be at, what's going on here, what time do I have to be at work, and suddenly something that sounds and smells and looks like Jesus comes up in your mind. That's not because you is good and you is kind. That's because the Holy Ghost is at work in you. Can we give the Lord a hand of praise for that? That's what's happening. Second thing, if you want to give your all to God, you want to see what God does, trust that God will multiply what I give to Him. The Bible is just filled with stories of how God multiplies. There was a little woman she had just enough bread to make she and her little boy something to eat and then they were going to die. This man of God comes into town. I promise you, I'm never coming to your house and doing this. If I do this, 
If I do this, you just feel free to kick me in the seat of my pants and say, Preacher, you have lost your mind. But this preacher comes into town. He comes up to this woman. He says, Bake me a cake. And she says, I don't have but just enough meal to make my son and I a hoe cake. We're going to eat that hoe cake and then we're going to lay down and die because the famine is so bad. But God had spoken to this prophet called Elijah. And he says, I want you to go to her house because I'm going to do something for her if she will trust me. And God says, bake me a cake. And in giving that cake to the man of God, she was giving it to him. Now understand this has been used by a lot of people to twist. God was proving himself to this woman. God wasn't proving himself to Elijah. God didn't call me to ask you to bake me a hoe cake. I don't like hoe cakes, okay? So God says to him, bake, to tell her, bake me a cake. She has a choice. Any mama, look at me, any mama in her right mind would have picked up a stick and beat that preacher half to death. But this mama suddenly felt something in her heart. She felt hope. She knew this man was a man of God. She baked him a cake. And when she baked him a cake, there was enough hoe cake and there was enough oil that took her and her boy through that famine and God blessed and prospered their house. God multiplies what you give to him. A little boy came to Jesus with his lunch and Jesus took that little boy's lunch and he blessed it and he broke it and he fed thousands and thousands people with it. God multiplies what you give him in faith. Another woman, she, had, she was going to sell her son into slavery. And God says, I want you to take that little cruise of oil. Gather every empty vessel you can and you just keep pouring oil. And she filled up every empty vessel until every vessel was full. She was able to pay her debt. She was able to sell it all because God multiplies. If you give God your time, God's going to multiply your time. If you give God your family, God's going to multiply your family. You're going to have godly descendants and godly grandchildren and godly great-grandchildren. If you give God your career, God will multiply your influence in your career. Friends, I am telling you, you will never outgive God. God cannot be outgiven. God is a good paymaster. God will bless you for your faithfulness. <laughs> he just does it. I don't know how he does it. I just know that he does. Jesus took these huge vats of water and because disciples obeyed him and they went and filled them up, he turned the water into wine. Jesus took a man who was paralyzed and because his friends brought him to Jesus and lured him down into his presence, he healed him. Jesus took a Roman centurion, a man who risked, look at me, your career, he risked his reputation. Centurions were men of war. A centurion would have cut the capsule out of your heart. Centurion was a man of authority. He had to have the respect of his men. If his men did not respect him, he would have been removed instantly. And a centurion humbled himself, put his career on the line, put his, 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 his leadership on the line, put his command on the line. 
And he came to Jesus, this traveling rabbi. Jews and Romans did not like each other. Jewish zealots were killing Roman soldiers. Roman soldiers were killing Jewish people. They did not like each other. But this centurion, turn me down, I think I'm too loud. Centurions were, were putting his life, his career on the line. And he said, please heal my servant Heal my servant. He didn't say so he could serve me. He didn't say so he could help me. He didn't say because I need him to carry my stuff. He says, heal my servant. When you get yourself out of the way and you want nothing but the glory of God and the good of other people, God can trust you with the power of God. There is nothing impossible to people with pure hearts after Jesus Christ. Nothing impossible. It's impurity. It's when we ask consumptively for ourselves. And then finally, and honey, if you'll come on up, I've got to close. God increases my influence. When I give my all to God, God increases my influence. And what is influence? <coughs> John Maxwell is famous for saying that leadership is influence. Influence is where your thoughts, your words, your deeds... They matter. It's where sometimes people make decisions because of the good influence that you have in their life. Recently, I was having coffee with somebody that I wanted to meet, and we met at Starbucks, and we talked about a mutual friend of ours who is a passionate follower of Jesus Christ and worked for... John Dingle, and as we were talking and having conversation together, he said, you know, he's been a good influence in my life. And so I wrote him about the conversation that I had at Starbucks. But then I asked him, I says, how has he been a good influence in your life? He says, you know, he listens. I says, what do you mean? He says, when you talk to him, it's like there's nobody else in the room. I says, really? He says, he looks at you. And you get this idea, he really cares. So I told him, I says, I know him. He says, you do? I said, yeah. I said, you know, and I can tell you, he really does care. Influence is, is not just listening and caring, but Influence is sharing. Sharing what you've learned. Sharing your faith story. Sharing what you've learned in your painful times, in your painful days. Sharing your time. Sharing maybe your resources. Influence is sharing your vision your dream and I hope you have a dream I hope with everything within me I've asked you so many times write your dream down email it to me because I promise you I pray over those dreams I got this massive file called a dream file and you share that dream influence is taking a student under your arm not literally but just saying, you know what? I see something in you. 
I believe in you. I'm looking back here at the corner of my eye and see Kira Valentine. Kira, you had a tremendous influence on my son, Christopher. Thank you. Every once in a while, I'll be asking Christopher something and he'll just talk about what he learned just by going and sitting in Kerry's office. I said to him one time, I said, Chris, you need to be sure Kerry's not busy working and you're just taking up his time. He goes, oh, he didn't care. Thank you, Kerry. Influence is believing in somebody that doesn't believe in themselves and helping them to understand that what's complicating their life is there, maybe there's sin. And saying God is not angry at you. God is angry at sin. And maybe just a little here and a little there, it's like chumming the water. Until one day they say, well, what does it mean? And you take a napkin and you draw out what Pastor Mark? Well, <laughs> you draw out on the back of a napkin what Pastor Mark drew out. This is what it means. Jesus shed his blood for our sins. He redeemed us. Jesus, there's a word, you don't have to use this word. But Jesus paid the price by giving his life for our sins. That's the reason I use the NLT. But I want you to know that that's an important word right there. Jesus, that's why we love Jesus so much. That's why Jesus is such a, that's the reason we don't go, Jesus Christ, Jesus. We don't, we love Jesus. We honor Jesus. We worship him. He is the son of God. Amen. And then God justifies us based upon what it's just as though I'd never sinned. The very thing that the world wants, God gives. Your influence begins to grow to where people want to know why you believe what you believe. You, Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it's lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? And will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless? You are the light of the world. Like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden, no one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. You're proving the good, the acceptable, and the perfect will of God. You're doing these good deeds not to save yourself, Jesus has already done that. He propitiated. He shed his blood. He redeemed. He saved you. He saved you. You're not doing... We do good deeds because God just changes our life. And when he changes our lives, he makes our hearts more like Jesus. We become a little more like him, like him every day as we surrender ourselves to him. And because... He has redeemed us from sin. I'm going to tell you something. I don't want to be like those people I started this message series with. Those people who have heart diseases, they have heart transplants, they have heart surgery. 90% of them don't change their lifestyle. 
90% continue to do the same things that was killing them. When you've been born again, you lose your taste for sin. You want to follow Jesus. Last night I had an amazing dream. I could not wait for Becky to wake up this morning. Matter of fact, I tried to wake her up a little bit. Oh, rolled over. That means don't wake up the bear. So when she finally, I got her where I could talk to her. I said, I got to tell you the dream I had last night. And friends, this was so real. In my dream, I had invited everybody to this big lodge, beautiful timber lodge. And I looked out on the lodge and I was so afraid nobody would be there. So I went into the back room behind the lodge and I just began praying, praying. When I came out of that back room, the lodge was filled. And there to my left was a, was a literature teacher that I had in high school. And because I was called into the ministry, he told the class, he said, we want to help Dennis become a pastor. We're going to study the book of Job. He was dying of cancer. And that last year of his life, he taught us all the book of Job in a public high school. I'll never forget him. And he looked at me and he says, it's all well, Dennis. It's all well. I looked out and friends, this dream, I can see it now. It was so glorious. There were people I knew from all over. I'm loud again, guys. Turn me down. There were people I knew from all over the world. There were people from Colombia. There were people from Paraguay, from Kenya, from Ethiopia. There were people from Bangladesh. There were people from the Czech Republic. I knew them. They were coming up and hugging me. And I, I could just keep going on telling you the people from Tifton and Brownstown and Valdosta. I could tell you people here in our community, they were in heaven. And we were embracing one another. And I went out onto the porch of this timbered lodge. And it was overflowing with people. And there were people coming down the road. And friends, I knew suddenly in my dream these were people who had been reached and loved to Jesus because of people like you and so I walked back up to preach the word of God to all of these assembled saints and I woke up and I was so disappointed that I didn't know what I was going to preach to all these people that were in heaven already so maybe I'll get to finish the dream tonight but I'm telling you God has a place in heaven for your neighbor and 2,000 years ago Jesus says love your neighbor as you love yourself love God with all your heart soul strength and might and when the church did that he added to the church daily those that should be saved can we give him a big hand of praise today hallelujah I believe that I believe that and I believe and it's up please don't you can't take money to the bank on this. This and two dollars will get you a coffee at Starbucks. But I believe that dream last night was for us to say, present yourselves and God will multiply your influence. So how can you do it? Well, first two things. You're a steward of it. God's going to hold you accountable for it. And secondly, you have a ministry. You have a ministry. So get through 301. You'll love discovering your personality tests you'll love sometimes I ask people what are you on the disc test go, oh I'm a high I pastor or I'm a D or I'm an S you go you go through that you'll understand what it is I said do you understand yourself better oh yeah I, things I just didn't know more than that pastor I understand my wife better now I go don't say that too loud 
because I've already told her. He says, I understand my kids because I want my kids to go through it. And Hines and Rick do a great job with that. You get your spiritual gifts test and it shows you where God has gifted you. And, and you see, when you begin to serve, you're presenting yourselves to God. Finally, here's how I think this will help you. Just some practical steps. Number one, go ahead and put the growth work up for me. Get equipped through the class I was just telling you about, Discovery My Ministry. Two, read some good books. I'll be happy to recommend them to you. Last week, I sent out two lists of books to people who just asked me for my thoughts on some books that would help them in certain areas of their work and ministry. Number two, uh, put up the next one for me. Manage your resources well. That's your time. If you don't manage your time, you're going to lose it. So you need a good calendar that you share with your wife. You need your children's calendar. You need to manage your time. And you need to build time in there. Look at me. Listen to me. I love you. I'm trying to help you here. You need to build time in there for a family night. You need to build time in there for a date night. You need to think about this from the perspective of life that you're in. Becky and I don't have munchkins at home anymore. I know what it's like to have four children. And it's just impossible for Becky to have a devotion in the morning. When there's four children to get ready to school and to get to church on time or anything like that, you've got to manage your calendar. And husbands, you've got to understand that with your wives. And wives, you have to understand your husbands sometime. And they're, maybe they're starting out in their career. And if you're on the bottom rung of the ladder, in this corporate world, people will call you in at all kinds of the hours. But if you work at managing, you won't be perfect. Manage your time. But also, manage your talents. Don't accept things that pull you out of your area of gifting. Work in the area that God has gifted you in. I was reading something to Becky last night. Michael Phelps, six foot four, more Olympic gold medals than anybody else in the world. But he has the body for a swimmer. He's got short legs and a long torso. It's the perfect body for a swimmer. But you know, there's another great Olympian out there. He's won more gold medals than anybody else. And I can't pronounce his name. He's African can't pronounce his name he's got a short torso and long legs he only weighs 134 pounds the man was built to run he runs like he's just on air you see if Phelps tried to be a runner he'd be a failure if the runner tried to be a swimmer he'd be a failure don't get outside your, does that make sense manage your talents well and then manage your financial resources as well. Then hang out with people that will encourage you. Don't hang out with net. You do not have time to hang out with emotional dragons. You do not have time to hang out with emotional vampires. You do not have time to hang out with people that are always criticizing and they're negative. They suck the very life out of you. You're like, why do I feel so bad? You've been around a vampire. Around people that build you up, that encourage you. Paul says, speak encouraging words to one another. Be around people that love to serve God. Paul says, do it all without complaining. And then finally, invest in young people. Get with Pastor Corey and Jeanette. Get with Pastor Mike and Becky. Find some young people you can pour your life into. Some of our students, our college students, I can't talk with him hardly anymore right now. One of them came in to see me the other night. We sat down for an hour. He was quoting stuff left and right. I'd never heard of these people. He said, Pastor, you got to read this poem. I go, okay. So I look it up. I read the poem. I don't understand the poem. But he was all on fire about the poem. 
It's a famous poem. And when I looked up some more, smart people read that poem. I'm not very smart. I read that poem. I don't get it. So he's going to interpret the poem for me. I'm telling you, if you will hang out with those kids, they will put some gray hair in your head, but they'll also they'll put a song and they'll put a smile on your face as well. Amen? I love you. Now next Sunday is an important service. We're going to talk about the power of the Spirit. How God transforms a life. You need to reach out to your lost friends this week. You need to invite them to come with you. Invite them to go to lunch with you or go to coffee with you. If you will invite them, they'll come. If you'll tell them, you'll meet them here, they'll come. But don't expect, look at me, don't expect God to multiply what you don't give Him. If you don't give an attempt, invitation, don't expect God to multiply that. Don't stand up here and go, God, supernaturally draw me. You're asking God to bring them to this spot when God has called us to go to their spot and love our neighbors. Amen? Stand with me. Let me pray for you. Pastor Rick, I know you need to make an announcements. So come on up here with me. I love you, Jesus. I love you, and I thank you that heaven is going to be full. I thank you that you have redeemed us. You brought us back from sin. God, I thank you that from the very beginning, we were not created for sin. This planet was not created for sin. That's why the whole creation groans and travails awaiting the revelation of the sons of God. I thank you, Jesus, that right now we can live and experience the kingdom of heaven in our hearts. That kingdom of righteousness, joy, and peace through Christ Jesus. And I pray right now, God, that if there's someone here today, that God, suddenly they know, I need Jesus. I need Jesus. I, I want to give my life to Jesus. Would you help them to pray this prayer with me? Church, would you pray? Say, Lord Jesus, thank you for taking my place at Calvary. Thank you for the gift of your atoning blood. Thank you, Father, for accepting that gift and forgiving my sins. And now, through my confession of faith in you, I commit my life to you with everything I have. In Jesus' name. Now, while every head is bowed, if you prayed that prayer for the very first time, or maybe you're renewing your dedication to the Lord, would you hold your hand up high? I'm the only one looking around. God bless you, sir. God bless you, sir. God bless you, ma'am. God bless you, sweetheart. God bless you. Somebody else. God bless you, sweetheart. Let's see your hand. Anyone else? God bless you. God bless you so much. Thank you. Is there someone else? Hallelujah. Well, family, that's five people that gave their hearts to Christ this morning. Can we give the Lord a hand of praise for that? Hallelujah.